got here Marvin Marvin Chavez, the man next in line to fight James Roper. So that, that's how it should be. But I, I got a bad feeling about this one, Mitchell. Yeah, and, and, and if Sultan doesn't give us a shot at the title and he tries to duck us, then we will sue him. That's right. That's right. And I will support these men. Honorable. I'll, I'll, I'll take it, baby. I'll take it, baby. These are honorable men. Very. Uh, well, yes. No, we, we, we are honorable men, but I've worked too hard for this. We've worked too hard for this. Now, I am the number one contender. I'm tired of James the Poodle, Grim Reaper, whatever he want to call himself, ducking me. All right? I'm tired of man driving around town in eight Rolls Royces. He ain't fought nobody. I'm still in a bro hand. Exactly. That a what? Uh, uh, a bro, a broham. He 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 drives a broham. What's broham? It's maroon. Well, actually, it's not maroon. What, what it is? It, it, it's Merlot, and it's, it's a broham. What's a Merlot broham? It's, it's like an old car, right? You guys don't know what a Merlot broham is. I thought it was a breakfast cereal. Rounders, like yeah. too. I'm sorry, we got it's our It's a Cadillac. Oh. A Brahm. Broham. A Broham. I got it. Broham. The Merlot Broham. It's a it's a fine car, but nothing like a Rolls Royce. You're a little camera shy, aren't you? Well, some sometimes, but you know, I'm getting the hang of <laughs> Yeah. Let me tell you something. 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 Well, let me tell you something. Well, let me tell you something. 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 Let me tell you something, man. Greetings, Grapple fans, and welcome to a classic original recipe episode of Let Me Tell You Something, the podcast in which your two co-hosts discuss a fascinating part of the professional wrestling landscape, the facets around it, seeing where we agree, where we disagree, putting things into a context, and maybe offering some recommendations or favourites at the end of the episode. And by we, I mean me, Lorcan Mulling, and with me as always is the carrying cross to my Scarlets, the Nick Bockwinkle to my Bobby the Brain Heenan, the Coco Beware to my Frankie, Mr. Simon Cross. Simon, how you doing today, mate? Oh, I, I was half tempted to squawk down the mic, but I, I don't want to do our listeners uh, a disservice with that. I'm doing fantastic. I, I'm ready, raring to go, and... Building on the encouragement you're giving me. Very close by, but not quite on the same level. So, what are we talking about for this episode? What's the topic we've chosen to discuss this week, Simon? Well, we always like to talk about a a general concept on Let Me Tell You Something. And we've cast the net even further this week, I would say, because we are doing ringside accomplices. Not just managers. Not just valets. Not just bodyguards, not just stable mates, the whole kit and caboodle. Yes, so you raise that as a key point. Do you regret that decision that we made? Should we have done a managers and then later on a valets and everything? Or do you think maybe each of them might not be quite enough, except maybe managers, to cover the whole hour that we usually do for these? I think what it is, is... Most people, when they think of a ringside accomplice, think of a manager, which is fair enough. Like, they are, by and far, like, the leading type. But there are some notable examples within the other categories. And maybe on their own, are there is there enough of a sample size of just, for example, mascots or tag team partners t- to make a whole conversation out of it? I'm not so sure. But... I feel that they are worth mentioning. So I did, yes, I did it. I did use. We did agree on the wording ringside accomplices, and I'm I'm overall at this precise moment in time happy with that. But we'll see how we get on. Because I think you raise a good point in that there are so many variables, and also the different types have risen and fallen in popularity based on the 
wrestling culture at the time, uh, the economics of the wrestling business, and the whims of the bookers and owners of the various promotions. Mm. Because really, if we go by what most wrestling fans in Western culture know if they follow anything about wrestling for the last 30, 40 years, it's been WWE, WWF. Yeah. And since about the late 90s, managers really fell out of favour with Vince McMahon and he didn't even like the term and has never really brought it back. He had some moments, there was like a brief time in the mid-2010s where suddenly every other act was getting a, a manager, an agent, or just a general, as we've described it, accomplice. Yeah. And also during the Attitude Era and the subsequent Ruthless Aggression Era, there would be a number of female accomplices, though not called valets in the traditions of the women in the evening dresses coming out with their charge, their ward. Mm. Trish Stratus was initially brought in as a manager. Yeah. Before being transitioned first into the Vince McMahon, Stephanie McMahon storyline, and then going on to be a full-time wrestler herself. And really the only one that's been holding the mantle in the WWE since then, and with the long gap in between where he was both not in that role and also not with the company, Mm. is obviously Paul Heyman. And I don't think at any point during his run as a ringside accomplice, if we take it from the start of him coming back post uh, the roster split, but also post his quote-unquote firing from the commentary booth for his allegiance with the Alliance. Yeah. First, I believe he was described as Brock Lesnar's agent, not his manager. Mm -hmm. And secondly, he became his advocate when he returned yeah in the 2010s that's a very box like structure kind of word i I think advocate if vince doesn't like a word it it just didn't get used even if it was the easiest word to use for something if it was related to wrestling or seen as too much of a cliche wrestling term hence everyone's suddenly learning about the word abeyance a few years ago oh the abeyance phase but there was that brief period then where it was working with Heyman and Vince just suddenly decided to give it a go. And you had Leo Rush accompanying Bobby Lashley. Yep. Wasn't Drew Gulak managing a couple of people or like coaching a couple of people? Or am I misremembering that entirely? Uh, Gulak and Daniel Bryan formed a friendship for like a hot minute before Daniel Bryan left. Well, no, the year before he left, sorry. So that was that was more like a student teacher like training partner kind of vibe. Well, you you did have Drake Maverick, aka Spud, yep, becoming the AOP guy after they uh, abandoned Paul Ellering on their debut on Raw. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You had Lana, of course. Mm-hmm. Summer Rae as well in that Love Square malarkey after after Lana and Rusev split. Although that was. That was a one-and-done kind of deal, really. Managers went out of fashion first in the WWE because Vince moved away from that. There would be, like, bodyguards or some figure, but it would have to be part of the act, and they'd also probably have to be someone who can do stuff in ring. I suppose the one that was the turning point, really, was Sonny. Mm. Who is a pivotal, sometimes a figure that's not given her dues. Because she was brought in as a manager, slash valet, But she also became the star of the tag team division in 1996. She she was a bit like a title bout herself at some points, basically. Well, the the story was she went where the belts went. Yeah. So she managed the Body Donners, and then the Body Donners lost the tag titles to the Godwins, but she likes the gold. She was a gold digger, that was the (laughs) storyline. In harmony! (laughs) And she took advantage of Phineas Godwin's naive crush on her to join them. And then when they lost the belts to the Smoking Guns, she took advantage of Billy Gunn's infatuation towards her and took over the Smoking Guns. Each time changing her gear, you know, from like a a Body Donner's fitness lycra deal to Godwin's wearing the classic plaid and... Daisy Dukes, 
to a variation of that, I suppose, with the with the cowgirl gear, with the smoking guns. And then the smoking guns lose those titles to Owen Hart and Davy Boy Smith. And with that, she loses all interest in them again. And that sets the team off against each other because Billy is still infatuated with Sonny. Bart thinks he's lost his mind and then they go at it. Yeah. And that was also, as well as being that manager figure in the in the tag team scene, she was also one of the top five pivotal acts that the whole promotion was based around. You know, around that time, if you're buying WWF magazine and Raw magazine, or you're watching any of the programs, they're just as likely to have a pictorial or a, a video shoot or whatever with Sonny. But then once she lost the um, a connection with the title belts. And her run with Farouk wasn't really uh, working. Mm, She then became basically lost and was almost like a, not a mascot, but just like a plug her in where we can. She'd be a roving reporter or she'd just announce a match or she'd referee a minis match or whatever. And then they tried to bring her back with the Legion of Doom when they became repackaged as LOD 2000 and that didn't last long and... She was in the throes of drug dependency by then, quite clearly, and had become second place to Sable at that point. Yeah. But Sable continued that mantle, and then it just became more and more about... Because that's the funny thing with the ringside accomplice. Are they a support to the act? Are they an equal part of the act? Or are they even more important than the act itself? Because as I was saying, Sonny was essentially more important than all of the tag teams... Sable was clearly presented as being more important than Marvelous Mark Merrow mm-hmm. by mid to late 97. And you've also got, like, Paul Heyman's association with Cesaro. Like, well, it, it was one of Paul's other clients that was, like, more important as part of the act, basically. Well, didn't Paul say, because we were at that Manchester talk he did at the comedy store. Yeah. Didn't he say that the only reason he was partnered with Cesaro was so that they could have him come out every week for some reason to bring up Brock Lesnar beating The Undertaker without them having to bring Brock Lesnar in for one of his few dates? Dates. Yeah. And so because it wasn't, let's bring Paul Heyman in to try and help Cesaro... It was never going to (laughs) work. It's like how Paul got partnered up with Curtis Axel and Ryback. And whilst... It did give Curtis Axel his most prominent role. Mm. It really did just exist to be the in-ring opponent for CM Punk. But the focus of the feud was still Paul Heyman. And then it followed up with Ryback. And then after Paul Heyman left them both, they then formed the legendary Axel tag team. Oh, yep. <laughs> oh, that uprooted a lot of trees, did that in the division as well. Mm. Ultimately, the managers were a really successful part of wrestling in the 70s and 80s because it fit within the territory model. Because within the territory model, wrestlers would come in and out, especially for main event feuds. You know, you bring in the challenger for the regional champion, be it Samatino or Backland or Morales, Mm. or in the other territories, like Jerry Lawler in Memphis, or the Hearts in Stampede, or what have you. Yeah. And the acts would be brought in, and they would come and go, but they would nearly always be the charges of one manager. So the manager was the constant thorn in the side of the champion, and every two to three months they they were throwing a new opponent at them to try and... Finally, I'll get you this time, Lawler. Yeah, like oh, I've been I've been to Uganda this time, and look at this guy I found. Exactly. So that'd be Jimmy Hart was like that in Memphis. Uh, Bobby Heenan became that both in the AWA, although he was more partnered with Nick Bockwinkel and the Blackjacks, but particularly actually with the WWF. Mm. If you look at the first three or so years of Hulk Hogan's run with the WWF title, the more constant opponent that he has over anyone else is Bobby Heenan. Heenan's with um, Andre the Giant. Heenan introduces Ric Flair. No, I was thinking more like the 84 to 87 period, where it's like Big John Studd, Hercules Hernandez, I believe that was a Bobby Heenan one, King Kong Bundy, Andre the Giant, and so it was like every time he'd be throwing someone even bigger at him. (laughs) Could you imagine like Braun Strowman in the 80s with Bobby Heenan? That would have been like the one, wouldn't it? It's so funny though to me that Vince McMahon did go so off managers because he had so many of them 
during the golden period, there were very few heels that didn't have a manager with them. They were like the exceptions. Some of the ones I'm thinking of are like uh, Bad News Brown, where it absolutely made sense for him to not have a manager. (laughs) But nearly everyone did. But I think also, as much as anything, that was the easiest way to get a cheating finish out. Yeah. When you look at it now, maybe one of the reasons that we all get so annoyed at the ref bump is that without a ringside accomplice to give the distraction, they've got to go down a different route. And because so many of these gimmicks and everything are so laboured the referee it's not being done in like a five second opening yeah they have to do the whole long setup and build up and play it out and the tension and everything and the ref being bumped means that there's more tension as to whether he'll get up in time to do the count and what and whatever you do see some like distraction work now in AEW, for example it's not gone away completely but if you take the last five to ten years, yeah, the ref bump is sort of... It became a staple of, like, many main events for big shows. Well, AEW has definitely been keen to bring back more of the ringside accomplices. Yeah. Managers or whatever you want to call them. Stable mates or... Stable mates as well now, more than ever. Which is more of a New Japan way of going, at it, I suppose, really. But I'm thinking Dan Lambert, Stokely Hathaway, yep. Smart Mark Sterling, Don Callis. Oh, big Don. Big Money Matt Hardy. Yep. Abraham Abrantis, is that his name? The guy who Penta's translator? Alex. Alex Abrantis. Alex Abrantis, there we go. Taz, Tully Blanchard. Arn Anderson. Arn Anderson, yeah. But although with those, it's nearly always, except for Matt Hardy and Taz, and I suppose in a way, Dan Lambert, they're usually just attached to one act. You know, Don Callis was pretty much only Don Callis was pretty much only a Kenny Omega guy. He would occasionally get involved in other elite business, but he was, as everyone was saying, it was the closest thing we'd had since then to the Bobby Heaton Nick Bockwinkle, where there were people of like equal intelligence. Yeah, like a a partnership of uh, intellects with a key goal, and it wasn't that Don Callis was covering for Kenny Omega's lack of mic skills, it just they perfectly complemented one another, and they had the history as well. Yeah. Smart Mark, for a time, was a one-client man. Then he, Well, no, no, he never was. What am I about? Um, it, he did have a long-term where it was time where it was just Jade, but has now been moved on in favour of Stokely. Stokely seems to be collecting... Um, Mm. talent at the minute like their pokemon cards yes because whilst the wwe never really had factions it had i suppose you would call them stables stables of talent that were built around a manager yeah so there were the heenan family the Hart family organization i I think those were the only ones that had names weren't they but mr fuji would have numerous people that would be under his management but they wouldn't necessarily interact with each other as much heenan fact like you'd often get the heenan family or the Hart family organization be put together in six-man, eight-man tag combinations. Mm. Like, there was at least one Survivor Series where it was the Ultimate Warriors team against the Heenan family. And they, I know there's been a, there was several Royal Rumbles where it would be the Heenan family all together and it would be Mean Gene or Sean Mooney shit-stirring, saying, what if it's Rick Rude and Arn Anderson in there with each other? <laughs> so, do you think it's better that way, or do you think it works more with a an accomplice that complements the rest of themselves or is it more just like let's be economical and and spread the guy around and give them the chance to get multiple people over and it's also a way to get people to boo someone immediately by putting them with if you put them with bobby heenan everyone's gonna hate you automatically yeah i think it honestly depends on on the act like like people don't some people don't need a, a manager but were associated with manager for a long time notable example being brock lesnar or uh, Kenny Omega. Kenny Omega. From well, I would my... disagree with that because with Brock Lesnar, I think he did need someone because he wasn't a great talker, and that's the purpose of a manager. I, I'm, oh, I'm more about uh, Lesnar after after his return, not not a beginning Lesnar. Beginning Lesnar, yeah. The only reason they brought Paul Heyman back was like a couple of weeks into his return run, he had to do a bit on the mic, and he was just like he didn't feel comfortable when he came back stage. Vince made a point that he didn't look right and. Brock Lesnar said words to the effect of call my Jew. <laughs> mm. Because Paul Heyman had formed a genuine real life friendship and business partnership with him. He must count his lucky stars sometime. Oh yeah. 
with the fact that he was there at the right place at the right time, that he wasn't needed anymore as a commentator on screen because of Jerry Lawler's return. Yeah. But they clearly saw a purpose for him, both as a writer, but also they knew that Brock Lesnar was something special, but they also knew that he had limitations. And already at that point, there weren't really ma- they hadn't been managers for a few years. Mm. But they knew that Paul Heyman was the right guy to put with him. And then from there, Heyman forms this bond and relationship that's lasted all these years. And whilst they're no longer on screen together, their relationship is still the defining part of the Brock Lesnar-Roman Reigns feud that's taken over WWE TV for the best part of a year and a half now. Yeah, yeah, it's it's been a very like lively element of that feud, to say the least. Okay, well, if you're, if you're not having that example, obviously there's the example you've ha- given of Kenny Omega and Don Callis. Like, Kenny didn't need Don. Sometimes it's to get the ringside accomplice over themselves, but they aren't the strong talent. Sometimes it's a Virgil situation. Well, yeah, I mean, Virgil existed to show the wealth of Ted DiBiase and... To be a bit controversial as well, the, the visual of a rich man having a black man silently do his bidding mm. and have to take beatings and, you know, never say anything. And the fact that, obviously, so much of the MJF Wardlow storyline was a mirror of that. I mean, when Virgil at the 91 Royal Rumble turns face and hits Ted DiBiase with his own million-dollar championship which he subsequently wins from yeah. DiBiase in, at SummerSlam 91. That's one of the greatest crowd reactions, of my, one of my favourite angles ever, honestly, in all of wrestling. Oh. The WrestleMania 7 match was fun, and then I think the SummerSlam 91 match is a hidden gem, really, for what it was supposed to do. It's one of those things where, if you go by a purely technical star rating system, it's probably no more than like a three. Mm. But for everything that it's told over the past, four or five years and for how they milk it and the resolution of the story and Roddy Piper on commentary who'd been the supporting character in that storyline as well like the angel on Virgil's other shoulder with the devil of DiBiase on the other it's perfect it really is perfect yeah every bit of satisfying in a completely different way to Wardlow's utter destruction of MJF (laughs) yes oh that was, and you're right, that was, like, in a mirror way, a perfect payoff to that particular feud as well. So we're talking about people that don't necessarily need management. I know that Bobby Heenan said that Rick Rude was really annoyed at having to be managed when he came to WWF by, by Bobby Heenan. But as I was saying, that was just a done thing. You were a heel. You had a manager, basically. And they had so many managers that on at least two occasions in their storylines... A new wrestler star emerged, and every manager was doing like interviews, angles, setups of them trying to win that wrestler's services as their manager. Mm. It was first. It was Randy Savage when he debuted in 1985, and then that was paid off late 85, early 86. With literally every manager, Bobby Heenan, Jimmy Hart, Johnny Valentine. Slick, whoever it was that was there at that point. I don't know if all of them were there by then. Freddie Blassie, I think. And they'd all courted him on screen. And then he says, thank you all, but I'm going to go with the one that's coming out now, which was Miss Elizabeth, which was completely the opposite of what you'd expect. And then they replayed that angle a year and a half later when Bam Bam Bigelow debuted. And all the managers were trying to get his services for them. Bobby Heenan would have been a logical one to go with again. And in the end, he surprised them all by going for a babyface manager. The little-known at the time, Sir Oliver Humperdinck. (laughs) And he never quite worked with Bam Bam Bigelow. And the idea as well, that's one that we bring up here, managers and accomplices to babyfaces, is not as common. No. It did have a tradition. Wrestlers having, like, beloved coaches, like... For both Bruno Sammartino and Bob Backlund's run as WWF champion for all those years, they both had Arnold Skoland as their coach, Mm. their mentor, or whatever you want to describe it as. And they would be like a calm, like, football coach or something, telling them about, like, like explaining what Bobby 
what Bob Backlund's condition was backstage after he'd been attacked by the Iron Sheik or whatever. And obviously that had the brilliant payoff with Arnold Skoland of how Bob Backlund lost the belt in Boxing Day 1983 because Iron Sheik had attacked his neck. Yeah. Put him in the camel clutch without Bob Backlund submitting. Arnold Skoland throws in the towel like Mickey from Rocky mm. or or Drago from <laughs> Creed 2. Spoiler warning. But yeah. let me say spoiler warning if you said it after that. And that storyline got paid off 11 years later when Bob Backlund went crazy and called out Arnold Skoland and attacked him. And Skoland at that point is like 70-something, 80-something. So he looked really <laughs> bad. And this man is utterly appalled. Get off of him! Oh my God, what are you doing to the legend Arnold Skoland? Oh God! <laughs> well, yeah, like, I mean, in terms of like coach... That again, they did do the Bob Backlund thing with Darren Young, of all people, with Bob Backlund being the coach, but that was played for laughs. And the most serious example of coach in the modern era, I guess, would be the Arn Anderson connection to Cody. I would have said Taz more. Yeah, Taz, Taz as well. But in terms of like football coach, like Arn literally had a play sheet, the laminated NFL-style play sheet. I think they, they leaned more into visual during the match coach, yeah, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Uh, he he would go and whisper to Arn at times. Whereas with Taz and now with William Regal, all the training is done off screen. It's just the characters, uh, the wrestlers get more and more vicious. They get better off screen. Whereas with Arn and Cody, there was this sort of like, he has to be coached on screen because of who Cody is, the character, and then the Cody-verse, blah, blah, blah. Arn was part of that. It was just one of those things. Yeah, I don't think that Arn and Cody ever fully worked because it never really made sense. Like, Arn Anderson always had hated the Rhodes family, and why would he suddenly be partnering with Cody? And I never got a sense of him being a positive or a negative to Cody. I never got a sense that he did something that improved Cody. The closest you can get is his infamous I pull out the Glock promo. <laughs> but still, it never. We've bored ourselves silly, as they did to us, with talking about the Cody Rhodes storylines in AEW and the flaws that they had. I was excited for Ryan Anderson being an on-screen talent. And whilst I don't think Tully Blanchard did a bad job with FTR, I do wonder if Ryan Anderson would have been an even better partner for them than... Tully Blanchard would have been. Yeah, maybe, but I don't know. The, the, uh, Tully works with like FTR because FTR they they had that like element of like shithousery, and Arn Arn was portrayed as a face at the time. It would have had to involve a term, which it could easily have done. But Tully Tully was more the sneaky one of the Horsemen compared to Arn, who was just the big bruiser. So I, I, don't I know. think it probably helped. To be frank, that Tully was still in very good trim shape yeah so you could get a bit more easily physically involved i mean there was at least that one instance of Arn anderson just falling off the apron that didn't look great yeah um and i'm sure he could still pull off a great spine buster if called upon to do so yeah that his surprise spine buster on the undertaker wrestlemania 18 will probably be in my top 30 wrestlemania moments ever i would say probably up there yeah a great line from Jerry Lawler. Someone should take that horse to the glue factory. So we've gone through managers there and babyface managers. Then they even tried it. I mean, think maybe the worst failed attempt at that was when they decided that the thing to do to make sure Michael's their tip top guy in 1996 was to reunite him with the guy who coached him when he was getting Dave, like the idea of him going back to basics yeah with jose lothario but it seems pretty obvious that Shawn michaels himself doesn't actually think that much of jose lothario in real life and he didn't seem to you know (laughs) he didn't seem to try and hide that fact and it just didn't make sense that jose wasn't a great personality he had no historical significance to the fans or anything and he wasn't charismatic he couldn't cut a promo Mm. It was always a bit baffling to me that they did bring him there. It kind of worked for the angle with Psycho Sid at Survivor Series. Oh, with the leg? No, with Sid hitting him with the camera and it looking like it might have caused Ah. Jose to have a heart attack. And obviously it was also put him as an opposite number to Jim Cornette because that was probably the last time they did that 
that um, territory staple of a, of a guy going through a manager's various uh, talents because Shawn Michaels beats Owen Hart and then it's like, Owen hasn't worked, so now I'm going to throw the British Bulldog at you. Shawn Michaels beats the British Bulldog. Okay, that hasn't worked, so I'm going to throw Vader at you. Mm. And that was supposed to be the one that will beat Shawn for the title, but then Shawn had a Shawn. He was a different man. It was a different time. What do you think with AEW? If if you're booking a promotion, would you bother with a manager? Yeah, I, I think some people need managers. You do it on a case-by-case basis rather than just have two or three managers and put plugging them in where they fit, you know? Yeah, that doesn't work. And that, that's a bit very much like having Helena Cell as a named annual pay-per-view. I personally put that in the same bracket of idea. It's just dumb. But you look at some talent, for example, Tony Nese and his association with Smart Mark Sterling, it, it gives Tony Nese a bit more like, a bit more charisma, a bit more funny heel edge. He has someone to interact with rather than try and stand on his lo- stand on his lonesome, like Mike-wise. I mean, he's he's a great athlete. He's a phenomenal athlete, but I think he needs someone to boost him. Some people don't need managers to talk for them. Some people need them to play off of. Jade's a good example. Like, Jade doesn't say a lot in her promos. Hasn't had to do, like, the WWE-style 20 minutes type of thing. But it because she can, like, play off Mark or... Sometimes Tony, Shivani, or now Stokely Hathaway of like, what's going on with this? Who's that? Ah, uh, sod that, sod that bitch. I'll be, I'll beat someone better, kind of thing. Yeah, Stokely was clearly a better link for Jade, but Jade clearly does need someone in that mold. Yes. Yeah. Not saying she's not charismatic, but I'm, I'm, I'm also saying she, if you give her like a Hangman style like length promo in AEW terms or a Kenny style one. I think it's as much as anything, she needs the gaga. She needs the bells and whistles because purely herself against someone else for 10 minutes is still not going to work. And it we're probably a, a, still a year of her training because she's having to do it in the glare of the spotlight with a title for it to fully pay off. Yeah. I still think she's destined to go to WWE personally, but that's not for this conversation. I mean, the one that was great for using extra characters around the ring for Gaga was Paul Heyman actually in ECW there'd be wrestling acts and teams that would have two three four people around them at ringside you know Raven had the Blue Meanies Nova Stevie Richards Beulah McGillicutty Chastity yeah so many different people there was one guy towards the end who was like picking his nose I don't I can't remember it's weird you'll just pick up a random ECW show and there's someone there with them, Simon Diamond had like five different people with him. One of whom was a guy dressed as a musketeer. No, oh, what? And that was just for Simon Diamond. You had the Dudley Boys with, so yeah, Bubba Ray, Devon, Big Dick Dudley, who would sometimes wrestle, mostly be like a bodyguard. But you also had Sign Guy Dudley. You also had Joel Gertner. Bill Alfonso was obviously there as the top manager, and yeah, we've we've had our issues with Alfonso. That's one of those ones where it's like, how much is it being a help and how much is it being a hindrance with that whistle going off the whole fucking time? Oh, God. You have Francine and whoever else was around at the time to have a cat fight with Francine in whatever main event matches they were having. Mm. Just Incredible would have an entourage of like two or three or four people. Like, it seemed like half the roster were ringside accomplices in some way, shape or form at one point or another in ACW because yeah. it's kind of... I think it's because Paul just is like, we need the distractions and it's all about the cheating and the big stuff and we just need bodies out there sometimes to take a crazy bump or whatever. Yeah, and, and it's like, you know, sort of gritty gang warfare style kind of thing as well. Mm, I don't know if a musketeer is particularly gritty. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Sorrow's a pretty scary film. <laughs> so we've talked about managers and random Gaga, I suppose. You've got the valets... And then you got, as you were saying, the bodyguards. I suppose that was the other thing where it would be very often for a pretty boy character or someone. Their whole thing was that they were brains and they were a mouth. They didn't need someone to do their business for them. They need someone to quote-unquote protect them, but actually be a way of building up a a new monster character that would usually get into the ring eventually themselves over time. Mm. Obviously, the first one that springs to mind is Diesel with Shawn Michaels. Yeah. 
And then you've got other examples like 911 was a bodyguard for Paul Heyman and Sabu. Well, he was he wasn't a bodyguard. He was like a handler for Sabu. He was like the only one that could get that could push Sabu to the ring in the in his control him Hannibal Lecter chained thing, and he was the one that could actually put Sabu back into it at the end of the match. <laughs> uh, so he was more like a handler or a controller at that point, I suppose. But yeah, you had Wardlow, mm. you had China, which was a slightly different way of doing it with Triple H, the, that with the gender dynamics. Yep. Psycho Sid was briefly Shawn Michaels' bodyguard, but that was designed for just setting him up to be the next guy to challenge Diesel for the title. But like, that literally lasted like less than a month, and then Psycho Sid turned on Sean, and that set up the, the Diesel feud, and then him feuding with Sean straight afterwards. I'm trying to think of more bodyguards that were there. Ezekiel Jackson came in as Brian Kendrick's bodyguard. Yes, yes, he was like weirdly mm. smart. He would like quotes like Sun Tzu and stuff like that. So it's a classic thing that will come back again. I mean. I suppose you could argue that Satnam Singh is kind of that right now for Jay Lethal. Sort of. I, I don't really understand that whole thing. A lot of that's hard to understand. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other ones that you could have, really. Like, APA, but they don't really count because they were guns for hire. No. Yeah, they weren't, they weren't specifically attached to one particular wrestler. It's always for the same thing, which is them gradually being brought in either as a partner in the ring... Oftentimes it's someone who's a bit raw in the talent department and they're just having to learn whilst they're on the road, as Diesel did under Shawn Michaels. Or at times it's like establishing a character who's just been bought in, like with Rhino and the whole Edge Christian thing. Well, he wasn't really a bodyguard. He was just a friend who would just come in occasionally and gore someone. <laughs> yeah. Well, Enforcer then, but that's that's a similar sort of thing. Well, but he was never like someone that accompanied them to the ring. He'd just pop up towards the end if needed so i wouldn't necessarily if you're an accomplice you're accompanying them everywhere i would have said all right that was more like a stable mate kind of deal faction mate yeah but in terms of like ringside accomplices interaction he's in one of my favorite ones the uh tables ladders and chairs match where it's where he he does a run in Spike does a run-in, Lita does a run-in, and they all start fighting each other. Yeah, Lita's another really good example of that, I suppose, in that she's not... Again, she's in the valet role, but it was more like a group of equals. Like, they were almost a faction, in a way, a proto-faction, Team Extreme. Yeah. And they fit that youthful aesthetic. And again, it was something they tried to do a couple of times after that, I suppose, with um, the Hart Dynasty where Natalie would accompany them, but it was like she was a female wrestler more than anything. Mm. And then you had the, you know, the Usos debuted as like their evil version with Tamina. Yeah. And you also had Paul London and Brian Kendrick. I think they were accompanied by Ashley Massaro for a while. They were for a while. Yeah. Yeah. The hooligans. For ones that were just like the beautiful people would always accompany each other to, for their matches. Yeah. That's where you get any more of the faction partnerships and, like your new day, your new days, yes, obviously, and Shield. There's a lot of that, really, with um, but that's more they're, they're more a unit. I mean, New Japan, that's more of a thing, and it's funny actually because obviously with New Japan, you basically got to be part of a faction essentially, or you're a native talent, yeah, so that you've got people to team up with on the smaller shows or in the undercard matches. You know, they even had to pair John Moxley with, I don't know what you would call Shota Umino in in that case. Is he like a a protege <laughs> hostage um but i love that they are still keeping that relationship going on to this day yeah and i think it will be something that we'll, they'll return to time and again i think we will see a you know a shooter versus john moxie match maybe as i've said before maybe shooter umino becomes leader of uh, blackpool combat club japan yeah or <laughs> something along those lines who knows it was funny as well though with the stables in japan that the, the Certain guys would get paired with certain other people that like, so they'd be like wrestler come mascot mm. or come. Uh, so it was like Zack Sabre Jr. for a while came out with Takamichinoku, and Takamichinoku would like do a whole bit before the match on the mic for, and end it with just tap out. And then I think for a while he was accompanied by El Desperado. All right, okay. And obviously you had when Kenny Omega would have his big matches, he'd nearly always have the Young Bucks out with him. Yeah. 
because they're the elite within the Bullet Club. And then you had Kazuchika Okada being led by Gado, who then switched his services to Jay White. And whilst with Okada, he never really interfered, even when Okada was, in theory, the heel at the start of his feud with Tanahashi. He was just really the mouthpiece in the sort of more Paul Heyman-esque role, I suppose. Mm. And then Okada was gradually getting away. And I liked how they they implied that it was a friendly breaking up. Yeah. But then three, four, six months down the line, Gado turns on him and joins the the Bullet Club and becomes Jay White's guy and becomes a lot more involved in the matches. <laughs> Check out my hot new emo girlfriend. I don't need you anymore. Yeah, this is a rebound that's getting way too serious. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Oh, dear. So that is, And now you've got that, I suppose, in AEW with like the best friends all coming out with each other for their matches. Mm. Like a ragtag group of but like the Sandlock kids or something. <laughs> Yeah, and then you've got, like, that looser association now with Chris Statlander, for example. Like, Wardlow, sort of like a, an ally. Like, what I like about AEW is there's levels. It's it's not like you're, you're best friends or you're nothing. There are levels to this. Absolutely. So, I think we've kind of covered all the different places. Do you think... It seems more prevalent than it ever was before, I suppose, because of AEW, but also because New Japan, who never used to do that sort of stuff. You had you you'd sometimes have the stablemates with them, especially if it was some high profile or it was like an interpromotional match. Yeah, they very often have. That would be when they'd have like their promotional teammates to, you know, and, and that sets off brawls around the ring or in the ring at the end of the match, like mm. like almost like those boxing matches where just suddenly. I would get so claustrophobic in that environment, those boxing rings so suddenly coming, like, everyone's in there. Oh, like the trainer's dog's cousin or something like that. Yeah, yeah I just the, the WWE equivalent of that, I suppose, was when Austin pushed Mike Tyson. Yeah. And it went crazy. That also helped protect Tyson, I guess, from, like, you know, worked punches and, and whatnot. It didn't expose him. But then again, um, Chris Jericho pointed out that Mike Tyson was... The, when he punched, uh, knocked him out, he he came as close as he possibly could without hitting him. Like he knows what he's doing. You had that as well with what used to be your favorite match of all time until you watched it a second time, which was the Floyd Mayweather Big Show match. <laughs> I never said my favorite match of all time. I said it was Might one of the. Well it was one of my hottest celebrity ma- uh, involvement matches of all time. It's not my fault. The standard since I first watched it has like massively been increased by Logan and Bad Bunny. Yeah. To name a few. <laughs> to get back to that, actually, uh, one of the best ever ringside accomplices who ended up overshadowing the acts that they were with themselves is uh, Damien Mizdow. Oh, my God. The stunt double of The Miz. And and he helped Miz. Like, one of the things a ringside accomplice, I think, does do that we've not discussed enough is they take bumps that you don't want the talent to take. Mm-hmm. Like, they let the talent run away and, like, build up heat a lot more. Like, bump machines. Well, also, I think it can be a very fun, satisfying little payoff. I think very often, like, house shows would end with a manager coming in and attacking Hogan or the Ultimate Warrior, be it Bobby Heenan or Jimmy Hart or Slick or whoever, and then sending them flying over the top rope and sending the crowd home happy. Mm. I mean, Miz has had so many accomplices, and I think we were saying, like, Miz is someone that gets other people over greatly. And and like I've said with the Ted... Like, Virgil was over thanks to Ted DiBiase as much as anything. The Miz had Alex Riley at his most over. The Miz had... Damien Mizdow at his most over. Axel and Dallas. Yep, the B team. Uh, Maurice was a fantastic valet for him. A real return to like a combo valet manager role. Mm. When she comes back, it still works. And now it's funny as well, you've got Sami Zayn sort of did it for a while as well in in a sort of managerial role for a while. And he seems to imply that that's where he would like to go after his wrestling in-ring career is over and i think he could work in that environment and maybe now under triple h because he likes so much of the old school stuff he he did have a few managers in nxt that weren't when there weren't really any in on raw or smackdown mm. like paul ellering alexa bliss initially alexa bliss initially well that's they, they sort of build some of them up as well well no oh, um, that's a little bit of a lie alexa bliss was a wrestler first then joined blake and murphy and was she did both side by side 
Well, I, again, I wonder if that was almost, again, one of the reasons they do with bodyguards, having them around the ring to watch and study. Yeah. So that might have been what Bliss was there for. That might have been what Carmella was there for at the time. Oh, Carmella, of course. Duh. And obviously, yeah, and also in NXT, they did have Stokely Hathaway as, I can't remember. Malcolm Bivens. Malcolm Bivens with the diamond mine, and it never quite worked out for him there. Wow, NXT was in a weird place at the time. Mm. How about the recent decision to have made LA Knight a manager instead of an in-ring talent, which surprised me, and then surprised me even more that they sacked him, and then surprised me even more when they brought him back. Well, apparently it wasn't a sacking. Apparently it was a temporary pulling because Vince didn't like something he did. And like in any industry, like sports, timing is everything, and he seems to have earned a reprieve. We'll see where it comes from, that. Um... Exactly. Well, that's the thing. If Malcolm Bivens had stayed around a few extra months, could he have been also on Raw or SmackDown? You know, again... We will know over the course. I think over the next year and a half, Triple H will experiment with various things, mm. and we'll probably see some versions of a lot of these classic roles: these bodyguards, these managers, these valets. Obviously, there's a chance that that's essentially what Scarlet's going to be yeah. with Carrion Cross, rather than her being an in-ring performer. I think for now, that's what works best as a visual. It's like when Lana, uh, before Lana started wrestling, when she was just Rusev's valet. There's something about that. It's like, okay, she she doesn't interact with other people. She is just this. I think when it's a wrestler as well, it can dilute it a bit. I like the idea of managers being used with multiple acts, but I wouldn't want them to just be sort of scattered and randomly assigned. I don't know. I want there to be some sort of logical link-up with certain wrestlers with certain manager types. Yeah. There was no particular good reason for Slick to be in charge of power and glory. No. You know, there was there was no particular good reason for Oliver Humperdinck to be put with Bam Bam Bigelow. And of course, sometimes you get people step up. Did you know that Roddy Piper, when he debuted in the WWF in 84, started off as a manager? I didn't know that, no. And then, I don't know if that was because of injuries or whatever, but then he gradually got into the ring. Yeah. You had Diamond Dallas Page, started off as a manager, didn't start wrestling, I think, until he turned 35. Yeah, he really managed Scott Hall, amongst others, didn't he? I think it's like, it's best if they have one or two acts that, that really fit with them. So it's like, I guess Jim Cornette is so indelibly linked with the Midnight Express, but then when he went to the WWF, they sort of put him in with various people. He worked well with Yokozuna. He worked He worked well with Vader as well. I think we might see more of the veteran wrestlers being put into those roles. You know, you had Christian, so they're like mentors, and some will stick around for longer term. And they'll be, you know, it's like how for our generation, we don't know Pat Pats and Gerald Briscoe, the wrestlers, but we know the Stooges. Oh my God, the Stooges. So there'll be generations that may not know Sami Zayn, Matt Hardy, Christian, the wrestlers... But they may know them as managers, depending on how they end up going. He wrestled a match against Daniel Bryan at the Performance Centre WrestleMania, where he was very much wrestling like a manager, despite being Sami Zayn. It was very odd, but he, he clearly appreciates the style. He would be good at it. He can be, he's very good at being an annoying antagonist. Right. I think it's time that we made our journey to Mount Rushmore. We've been saying as we've been passing text, this has been, again, because we made the category so wide and expansive, we didn't do ourselves any favours, I suppose. We did not, no. But I am going to let you go first, Simon, and give us your four choices for the Mount Rushmore of ringside accomplices. Okay, I'm going to leave a couple of honourable mentions out, Purely because of their proximity, I, my perceived proximity of them to a potential of getting into your Mount Rushmore. So I'm going to um, bin two of them off and I'm just going to read out the ones I know you won't have picked. Vicky Guerrero. Uh, it's a generational thing. I grew up a lot more... Uh, it was like my teenage years, stroke early ad- like adult years, when she she was in a pomp... And that voice cut you, cut through you like a knife. It made hated people even more hated. And it was, it was nice to see a woman who initially wasn't very good at it, jarred a little at first, and then just come leaps and bounds into her own and really grow up for the role. So um, I've gone for Vicky, Vicky Guerrero as an honourable mention. I'm going to say the New Day as hype brothers for each other. 
that's just always pure gold. Would you go in the New Day specifically? I would, if I was to make a case, I'd make the case for Xavier Woods. Xavier's good. Big E is mint at being a hype man as well. But I think Xavier was designed to be the hype man, especially. It wasn't until their face turn, really, that he started to become mm. as much an in-ring wrestler. I think nearly, it felt like 90% of their in-ring defenses during their time as the tag team champs for like 400 whatever days it felt like the vast majority of those were Kofi and Big E and Xavier I mean when they did the first angle before it got turned into the New Day she uh, Woods again also partly because he was the smaller guy and also the most I mean they were all good promos but I suppose he was the one that projected in intellect mm. with his character I think they always saw him as the manager and it wasn't until really the New Day became so over, it's like, well, we might as well let Xavier wrestle because he would want to and the other guys want him to. Yeah, yeah, somewhat. But um, I also think Big E with like, sort of his evangelical preacher background, his just energy as well. He's also a good hype man. Him, during, him and Xavier, especially during Kofi Mania, they work their absolute socks off. And I've, I've got massive respect for them for that. So that's there. One set of accomplices that were around for a good time, but not necessarily a long time, doing a bit of a Stooges tribute act. J&J Security. Oh my God. The bumps, the things Brock did to those boys <laughs> to protect Seth. It was amazing. It just made sense as well. It allowed Seth to be like conniving, sneaky. They were kind of simple, but not. Uh, so so it works like you know the, the the big dumb henchman the crab and goyle kind of thing it was perfect i liked it i liked it uh i'm gonna leave a few the rest out because like i say i don't know how close to your list they are so my definitive actual four i've li- i've limited myself to two managers explicitly i tried to put, I put a cap on so manager number one is uh, a man i've not seen a lot of but a man who is truly iconic, that's Bobby the Brain Heenan. Um, I think purely for his influence, what people look up to him for in all aspects of his game, be it wrestler, be it commentator, arguably people talk about that one the most, but of, of I would say a close second is his managerial work as well. So all the work that he did, absolutely fantastic. Gotta be him. Second one was pretty much straight, slotted straight away into my list. For me, it's got to be Paul Heyman. For a man of my generation, just the guy in terms of like getting you to hate something or getting a point across. So those are my two managers. I've gone for one bodyguard, and I, it was between two. I settled on Diesel because he was great at like being an absolute unit for Sean. And he got such a successful career off the back of it as well. It was like his launchpad for him, too. I think he's the bodyguard I can most say got the most over for the longest period of time and did the best out of being a bodyguard. Well, he was a bodyguard almost entirely going into 1994. And by the time he comes out at the end of 94, he's the WWF champion and he won the Triple Crown within that year. Exactly. Like, it's insane. And then obviously. It was his name and renown on top of how he was presented when he was an outsider. And it was a launch pad and he ran with it really, really far. And uh, top valet of all time. There can only be one in my eyes. It's because of her iconic level. It is the lovely Elizabeth. Okay. (laughs) Truly iconic. So I'm at a bit of a crossroads here. But you've kind of solved it for me, I suppose. This is a tough one. Because, okay, I'm going to go through my thought process and I'm going to give you what my plan was. I didn't do a bodyguard. Because whilst I do enjoy bodyguards, if I was going to go with anyone as a bodyguard, it would have been China. But I think she was always actually quite limited. She had a great look, but she was also like prone to making tons of mistakes as a, as a bodyguard if you listen to some stories but she had such a great presence and so she did add, add a lot and she would have been and she's in my honorable mentions okay so i did have elizabeth down so i think right now elizabeth is down as a definitive pick mm. because i did put her down as the best valet with the other ones in the running being sable and sunny 
Sable, though, I think was too much of a distraction. And Sunny was fantastic, but she got so quickly lost in the shuffle. And again, I think the problem with both Sable and Sunny was that they drew too much tension away from the acts. Whereas Elizabeth helped Randy throughout it all. Randy Savage was a bigger star because of Miss Elizabeth. But I also do think that she had, like, her time in WCW was very ropey as well. Kind of undid a lot of the good graces. So that was the only reason I was thinking of knocking her off the list. I also wanted to go with the manager. And I had three names. And I was going to eliminate whatever one because I expected you to pick them both. With Heenan and Heyman. And I was going to pick whichever one it was that you picked to go with the, to go with the support one. But right now I'm going to ditch them both for now. And go with Jim Cornette. Because he did both the thing where he was a definitive manager for a definitive act for the longest time with the Midnight Express. But he also worked so well in WWF with Camp Cornette and also with with Vader. And also all his work in Smoky Mountain Wrestling with the Heavenly Bodies and Buddy Landell and everything. And he's just one of the best talkers there ever was. Mm. The next two are interesting ones because... One of the reasons I didn't go with China, because I wanted to give some a different kind of ringside accomplice that can kind of merge the two together. And I, want, I want to make this story, actually, because my first experience of the term manage, when I was first getting into the WWF, there were these collector's cards. Like, you know, there would be a wrestler on it, and then on the back would be information about that wrestler. Mm. Sometimes it'd be, like, profile picks, studio picks, sometimes it'd be action picks. Um, when it said, like, um, Virgil or, or something, like, and there'd be a fact about Virgil or whatever. And with this one, mm. it said, yep. managed the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase and Macho King Randy Savage. And I misunderstood what it meant by managed. Because it's like, have you managed that? Have you been able to... Like, I saw it as, like, controlled. So I read it as, like, they were able to beat them up in a fight. Like, they held their own. They managed to, like, deal with them. And the fact that I could believe that Sensational Sherry could manage both Ted DiBiase and Randy Savage at the same time is the reason why I'm giving Sherry Martell a place in my Mount Rushmore. Because she was such a great act. She was so good at what she needed to do. She, she'd bump off a Miss Elizabeth slap like it had knocked her silly when you knew in reality... Sherry was as tough as nails and she always timed a good kick in and whatever whatever was asked upon her she would do it and she'd work and she always accentuated whichever act she was with she she was only ever with one act at a time Macho King Randy Savage Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase and then Shawn Michaels and then later on in WCW with Harlem Heat but she always worked well within their team without pulling full attention away from them. She was the perfect first step for Shawn Michaels in his heel run. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Her even coming back to sing Sexy Boy with uh, Kurt Angle, she was still able to do what was called upon her. And the thing that actually put it over the edge for her was this week I was just watching some random wrestling matches and I watched Randy Savage against Genikiru Tenru at the WWF All Japan New Japan joint show at the Tokyo Dome just after WrestleMania six. And obviously the role of women in Japanese wrestling has been a contentious point. But her and Randy Savage is this psycho, like crazy, chaos-inducing act causing all this trouble for Genikira Temru and getting him really pissed off. And there were moments in this where Sherry lamps Tenru so hard. And you know Tenru wouldn't sell it if it didn't work. Sends him flying over the barricade, and it's completely believable. <laughs> she had like that intensity to her, though, didn't she? Absolutely, she did. She was a hundred percent for everything, and you know, to make it in wrestling as a woman in that era, yeah, shows you how tough you are. Because there is not a place for women at that point, and she forced a place for herself, whether it be as a wrestler or more often than not as a ringside and force ringside character if sensational sherry was in her prime now you know she'd be up there around the likes of thunder roads because she would probably have better coaching in order to be a better in-ring wrestler and been allowed to be more free because she came from that fabulous moolah era but she took the mantle from moolah and was actually talented so and as far as i'm aware not a scumbag so 
<laughs> That's why I've gone with Sherry Martel. So my picks so far are Elizabeth, Sherry Martel, Jim Cornette. And this name, it amazes me we haven't brought this person up yet. But they were the classic case of a a supporting act to the main act that perfectly fits, is designed for that act. But then he was even able to do cool stuff as their opposite number when they no longer were their accomplice. And that's Paul Bearer, a.k.a. Percy Pringle. Originally created for The Undertaker, he'd been just Percy Pringle on the various territories, Texas and the like. And then they repackaged him as Paul Bearer. It turns out he actually was an Undertaker, like, worked for a funeral service. <laughs> the look was iconic. The voice was iconic. And then his reinvention, when he turned heel on The Undertaker, turning into, like, a Jerry Falwell kind of Southern Baptist preacher... And all the stuff with the, you know, carrying the Kane storyline for months before Kane made his debut. Unfortunately, he got lost in the shuffle when the Attitude Era came along and Vince McMahon got involved and everything. And then it was just like health issues for pretty much the rest of his run. But that whole run from 1990 to 1998 of Paul Bearer is just, you know, the, the fact that he is still seen as sort of the definitive other aspects of like almost like an extra limb for the undertaker even to his hall of fame speech and the fact that his death was made a big part of storylines you know i don't think any other manager's gonna have had that part of their character you know that be that big a deal post-death yeah yeah so here's where we have the impasse because i was gonna go with paul Heyman or bobby heenan but I love all of my picks as well, but I was going to be able to conceive one of them for Paul Heyman or Bobby Heenan. But if we go with Elizabeth as definitive one, that doesn't quite seem right to me almost. Mm. I would make the case that we should drop Diesel from this because he's, you know, he was only a ringside accomplice for a very short period of time. And whilst the bodyguard is a great role i don't think it's a necessity in a mount rushmore yeah yeah for diesel it's 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 not a length thing it, it's what he did with it you've had to use that reasoning before <laughs> so what i'm gonna do is i'm gonna stop being awkward buggers with you simon and i will just allow that i'm gonna have to drop miss elizabeth from my list but that is so that while she remains on your list then it's almost like my honorable mention okay you know, if you were to, like, gender divide it, which we shouldn't, but that's what we've done. I think we would say what are the Mount Rushmore female accomplices. I think it would be four out of the five of Miss Elizabeth, Sensational Sherry, yep. Sunny, Sable, and China. Yep. And I would say probably ditch Sable out of those four. Yeah, as, as an accomplice, yeah. Yeah, I'd say Because so. Sunny redefined the role of women in wrestling, not necessarily for the positive or not, but it was through her own magnetism and charisma that... It changed the prevalence of female roles on wrestling TV and how much of a part of the industry they became. She essentially created the diva before it came became a term. And whatever you say about the diva period, there wouldn't be a strong women's division now if there wasn't a, a felt the need for there to be a diva's fixture on the card during that time. And then just the role of women thankfully, has continued to evolve from It is through Sunny and Sable that, that women got more exposure on television, so... That had been gone, really, since Miss Elizabeth, for the most part, had left her role with WWF. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what we're going to go for, then. To repeat it, Simon, uh, your four Mount Rushmore picks are... Bobby Heenan, Paul Heyman, Miss Elizabeth, and Diesel. And for my Mount Rushmore picks, I went for Sensational Sherry Martel, Paul Bearer, Jim Cornette, and our shared definitive one, Bobby the Brain Heenan. So that's been Ringside Accomplices. I would like to thank my usual podcast accomplice, Simon. Thank you. <laughs> the Robin to my Batman. <laughs> At least you didn't make yourself Alfred the Butler. Damn you, sir. <laughs> Damn, we're going with the Scrubs references now. That really is a sign we need to knock it on the head. <laughs> For our next episode, we are going to go back to Match of the Week. And there's been a little shuffle around, a change of the orders in reaction to current events again, unfortunately. 
we're going to do a match of the week that's essentially a tribute episode. But it, it will be part of the uh, continuity, actually, because we don't have to higgery-pokery things around. We can make space for this. We're going to New Japan in 1976 to see its founder and sadly recently departed Antonio Inoki face off against the British technical wrestling master and huge influence on wrestling in Japan that is Billy Robinson. Yeah. A match often lauded as one of the greats of that era. It was the match of the year in 1976, I believe, or 1975. And it was billed at the time as the two great technical wrestlers in the world facing off against one another. And we'll have plenty more to talk about that and Antonio Inoki and his legacy. One of the things I think we'll discuss is whether or not you could argue that he's one of the ten most important figures in wrestling history. Mm. But that's for the next episode. But until then... If people want to get in touch with you, Simon, with maybe some Inoki recommendations or some other suggestions of people that can accompany you in your life, how could they do so? Uh, they can get in touch with me on Twitter, where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of individuals in my Mount Rushmore who never became active full-time wrestlers themselves. My name is Lord Kamalan. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for accomplice, N for nuisance. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put in at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. And my name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great time. Until the next time. Took a back step, took it to Hogan, took it to the Undertaker, took it to whoever got in that ring. That's why he is hey, Bobby Cole now, the real world's heavyweight champion. We're not the kind of guys to say, we told you so, but, but we told you so. so. <laughs>